Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our colleague Noel is on adventures. We'll be returning soon. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control, Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. On March 16th, 2000, two police officers were shot in Atlanta's West End. This is one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city with many stories behind it. One of these officers passed away as a result of this interaction. The other claimed the shooter was one Imam Jamil Abdullah Al-Amin, the leader of a local mosque. And in uh, other times, this man was formerly known as H-Rap Brown, leader of the Black Power Movement, uh, an honorary officer of the Black Panther Party. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But was he guilty or was this conviction somehow retribution for his activism? The new podcast, Radical, investigates, interrogates these questions and events in a deep dive never experienced before with the investigative journalist Mosey Secret, who dives through exclusive interviews, government records, countless sources to get to the bottom of the questions inherent in this case. And we are immensely fortunate to be joined with him today to learn more about this story. Mr. Secret, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, you're welcome. Please call me Mosi. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Right, Secret. Mr. Secret. <laughs> it just sounds so cool. I, was, I had to do it once. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Mosi, it's really good to see you, man. Uh, just for everyone's knowledge, uh, I serve as an executive producer on this show, Radical. It's made with Tenderfoot TV. As m many of you know, I make shows with that team. And uh, I'm, I'm just really proud of the work that's already gone into this show. We are coming up right now on the final episode uh, episode eight is coming out very soon and uh we just couldn't wait to pick your brain on a lot of the the stuff that you've found uh i think maybe a good way into this is uh, mostly how did you come across this story initially well there there are kind of two answers to that question um 
you know, so I, I'm from Atlanta and um, I grew up fairly close to the Muslim community. My family converted to Islam when I was a kid. So because the community of African-American Muslims in Atlanta isn't that large, I was familiar with um, a man, Jamil Alameen, um, and his community. And I was also familiar with this case when it happened. But as you said, you know, that was 20 years ago, and it's not something that has really occupied my my mind in the kind of intervening years between um, the shooting and, and the production of this podcast. A year or two ago, I was quite randomly introduced to um, a podcast producer who had already started looking into this case again. He had done extensive, his name's Johnny Kaufman. He had done extensive uh, public records requests, uh, pulled court documents, and was really kind of pointing to um, some questions in this case. And, you know, I, when he told me about this, you know, all these things kind of came back to me from my childhood. And I thought, well, you know, I would love to work on this with you. And it just so happened that he was looking for a host and a reporter. And then, you know, like I, when I left Atlanta, I went off to be a reporter. So it just kind of felt like it was one of these stories that was made for me. Man, and uh, just if you do live in the Atlanta area, you probably know Johnny's voice uh, from his work with WABE. Sure. If you ever listened to the NPR stations in town, that's mm-hmm. that's how I recognized his voice <laughs> for the first time. I was like, "What? I know this guy." <laughs> and and what uh, synchronicity uh, there must be in that moment, because you know, hearing as you said, quite randomly, you hear this story. And you, as any member of that community during your childhood, you will automatically know the the yeah. people that that are being referenced here. Uh, there's something that really sticks out in um, in part of this exploration. Could you tell us a little bit about this summer camp you attended in childhood and how that? I I just think that's such a, a fantastic way in to uh to the imam in this community yeah so um my family converted to islam from kind of different evangelical faiths actually when i was uh 12 or 13 years old and um and imam jamil alameen's community is one of the first that uh they came into contact with and i think that there was a period you know when they were still kind of finding their footing, trying to figure out how to, you know, get their children to understand this new faith or whatever. And somehow my parents learned about this week-long camp um, that Imam Jamil convened in the North Georgia woods. Um, And so, you know, just to kind of give you a sense of what kind of kid I was, I was like, you know, this would have been when I was 12 or 13. I think that I was like, you know, kind of chubby, into books, you know, like uh, riding my bike around the neighborhood. Hadn't really been anywhere without my parents. Let's just say that I was sheltered. And so this camp for me was was quite intense. You know, it was um, from this kind of being taken from this kind of sheltered, you know, middle class existence into a, a fairly kind of intense black revolutionary ideology and setting. Um, and also, and also, you know, uh, religious, uh, you know, like extremely religious settings. And so there was, you know, a lot of emphasis, emphasis on making the five prayers a day, which at that, at that time I probably didn't even really know how to make, or I was learning. Um, and there was, you know, physical fitness and self-defense. And I was kind of thrust into this environment with these kids from the West End, the Mam Jamil's neighborhood, who I didn't really know. And these were kids who were, they were pretty, um, they were like rough around the edges. They were into stuff I wasn't into. They were, they liked to fight, you know, they liked to cuss. They liked to, uh, you know, it was just like a, it was an immersion into a world that I wasn't quite familiar with. And, you know, as I became older, I began to connect a lot of what I experienced in just that one week with what that community was, um, you know, Imam Jamil attracted people who were down on their luck, who were returning home from prison, who were anti-establishment for one reason or another and gave them reason to believe in themselves and gave them, you know, a cause that they could organize their lives around. And so that meant that a lot of the people 
were, um, you know, like I said, kind of rough around the edges, um, but they placed so much faith in him as a leader and uh, to kind of organize and redeem their lives, you know, including sending their children away to be, to be groomed by him. So it is a nice little kind of encapsulation of what he represented for folks. What I'm hearing is that he was, he held a tremendous amount of influence in that community at the time. It would, is that correct? Definitely. I mean, influence over even the intimate details of, of family life, you know, he would help them, um, arbitrate internal disputes. Um, so it was, it was, he was considered a leader, both a spiritual leader, but also, you know, kind of helped, helped them, helped them organize their lives. And he had a bit of a, he also had a, um, secular community building area too, with the, with the grocery store, right. Which as you, you paint the scene so beautifully, right. It's, uh, just across from the, um, uh, what's, what's the uh, correct Arabic word for mosque? Mosque, masjid, yeah. Masjid, yeah. So it, it seems that this, this community leader becomes in some ways an answer for people who are, who are searching for, you know, uh, community stability in a way that might not have been available previously. Uh, in this, as we know, this is something that happens often in the United States in one degree or another because law enforcement so often fails, right, and and commits uh, horrific acts. With with this background, uh, we see already a bit of like Whitman-esque multitudes in one man because he is he is the he is the leader, he's a beacon for people in the Western community, yet it seems that uh the local law, the APD and and uh, other other authorities uh, don't see him in that way. Could you tell us a little bit about how authorities had regarded uh, the imam before he even arrived in Atlanta? Yeah, so um, Imam Jamil arrived in Atlanta in the late seventies. Prior to that, he had been a nationally known figure in the Black Power Movement uh, named H. Rep. Brown. H. Rep. Brown um, uh, grew up in Louisiana, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and there suffered, you know, um, racial violence and oppression under Jim Crow. As a young man, he he kind of gravitates towards the movement and and towards um, organizing, and eventually he ends up in the Black Belt uh, of Alabama, helping citizens there um, organize to register to vote and also just helping them to develop their own leaders and um, push back against the oppression that they were feeling. There he becomes known as someone who is courageous and fearless and brash. So, you know, like, he was doing this work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was the the one of the main um, activist organizations at the time, and they were organized organized around principles of nonviolence. But when you were with these folks out in the countryside, who were you know miles away from any help and and often could suffer the whims of any type of local sheriff, they often had rifles, whatever, by their door size to protect themselves because it was going to be a long time before law enforcement came to help them. And so H. Rep. Brown goes into these communities and there is this nonviolent ideology that he's working with, but there is also this, um, he's also telling people to defend themselves. He's also telling people, you know, this is how you use your gun. Um, this is how you um, take these people on. And so he, people who had been really beaten down he started started to build back up, and it was around this rhetoric of self defense. Now you imagine a person like that uh, becomes a bad guy in the eye of law in the eyes of law enforcement, and and he refused to back down in any confrontation with law enforcement, and so he develops this reputation over a period of years as someone who was against the police, and he did hate the police, and so this you know this relationship. Uh, basically became worse and worse. And, uh, you know, by the time he was in his late 20s, he was on the FBI most wanted list for some charges that were 
trumped up in various ways. Um, but this, but he developed his reputation as someone who really hated law enforcement and was willing to defend themselves, defend himself with weapons against law enforcement. And you know, like that, that breaks down this kind of veneer that, that the cops have is is you know unassailable. And and so he was a scary person for them. Mosi, did you come across the rabble rouser index from the FBI? No, I haven't heard of that. Okay, so. This is something that is available right now. Anybody listening, you can go to the National Archives and you can find the FBI's, quote, Rabble Rouser Index. Uh, it's also known, they, they use the term subversive control uh, in association with this. And there's like 255 documents, like PDF documents that have been scanned in. Stunning it, reads. It, well, it's, it's amazing. A lot of it's redacted, but uh, I'm... Uh, I don't want to read too much of this, but just a little bit of this, because it's a memo from FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, who has played a role in so many stories, including the MLK tapes uh, show that we made last year. And this is just insane to see this. Uh, I'm going to read it. Effective immediately in view of the widespread racial unrest, the Bureau will maintain a rabble rouser index. The index will consist of names, identifying data, and background information of individuals who are known rabble-rousers and have demonstrated by their actions and speeches that they have a propensity for fomenting racial disorder. And uh, Stokely Carmichael, the person who preceded uh, H. Rap Brown as the SNCC chairman, he is like at the top of the list. Stokely Carmichael is like, enemy number one when it comes to how the FBI views uh, anyone in this realm, right? It includes a ton of black power leaders. It also includes KKK members and Nazi party leaders, which is really interesting. Um, but it's just, I guess it's just to show that the FBI viewed H rat Brown as an enemy, a true, an enemy in almost a war. Uh, and and I, I, I guess I, I, I'm sorry. I need to ask a question mostly, but it's just like, what, what did you find? Uh, when it came to how the FBI was either monitoring or what were they watching him in the same way that they were watching Stokely Carmichael? Definitely. I, I mean, when Cointelpro was, was first organized, there were, and I don't want to get too specific because I might say something that's wrong, but there were a, a list of names that were included as people who could be considered a black messiah. Someone who could, one of these rabble rousers who could, um, who the black public could could uh, convene around and could ultimately kind of undermine the integrity of the United States. And H. Rap Brown was one of those, was one of the people whose name was on that list. Um, and so, you know, like we get into there, we come, we came across some of these documents in our, in our reporting and our research. And you begin to see kind of like in close detail how these operations worked and how they could undermine someone's ability to, be effective as a leader. And with with H. Rap Brown, what they did was they, yes, there was surveillance, um, but what ultimately slowed him down was kind of like a barrage of, of, of charges that were not true. And so they pulled him into the court system in a way where he suddenly had court dates. He certainly had, you know, was in jail for violating bond. He, he suddenly couldn't move around because of the, the terms of his release. Um, and, uh, and these charges just accumulated to the, to the point where he had to step down as the leader of, of the student nonviolent coordinating committee. And then, you know, like, so that happens and in the public's mind, those charges perhaps could be true. We don't really know, but if you look at the long kind of arc of time, all those charges are, are, are thrown out, um, for various constitutional reasons. And so the, the question becomes, why were they brought and was there was there some intention or purpose behind that and and in this case it's quite clear the answer is yes and so he's forced underground um this all of this kind of like legal assault is a strong word but this this all these legal actions eventually culminated in this in this car bomb explosion outside of a court court hearing where he was supposed to be in attendance and it's pretty um widely assumed that that car bomb was an assassination attempt against him, many believed by the FBI. And so at that point, he he has to go underground just to, to protect his life. And his days as an organizer 
are under are pretty much over, or at least they're undercover at that point. Hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, eighteen months he has to disappear, so more than a year or something. He's he's off the grid and underground, and this also uh, the the what I really appreciate you pointing out here is that in the case of uh, Cointel's approach, it's pretty clear that they were not. Uh, under the auspices of this program, they were not saying, let's find someone who has committed a crime. They were saying, let's find some, let's find a crime to fit on someone because yeah. we find them dangerous. So we could make a very clear argument it is an active series of conspiracies, not conspiracy theories. Well, it, it's nuts. If you look at that index, it is all of the field offices, all of the FBI field offices across the contiguous United States that are keeping tabs on anybody that ends up on that list. So like any anywhere they go, who they meet with, like it, it's it's nuts to see that level of um, I, I, it is surveillance. But again, as you're saying, once you get into the American prison system through the justice system, you are now in that system and it's so much easier to have someone get back in it and stuck in it. And I think that's just such a good point. Um, and that is where Imam Jamil Alameen finds himself now. We're going to pause here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl 
Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we've returned. I want to talk about this word violence, if you don't mind. Uh, you, you have a great exploration in Episode 5 on the word violence, how we use it, the way, like what we apply it to, and how it's actually... Um, a much more robust word that can apply to other things. And how, how would, how would you apply it to, let's say the prison system and specifically all it means experience? Yeah. So th- this exploration started really with, um, this phrase that, that Jamil Alamin is famous for uttering, or actually, you know, he, he said it when he was still H. Rap Brown and one of his stump speeches, he said, violence is as American as cherry pie. And what he meant by that was that America attained its greatness. America attained its position largely through force against human beings by um, forcing people into labor, by um, battling people for their land, etc. Like we we know we know these things. And so, as um, as uh, a member of a group of people that was oppressed, he said, okay, let us let us also take violence into our hands as a means of power. And so that was that's kind of one of the things that we're interrogating in the show. And that's kind of what led to this exploration of the word violence. And so, you know, I think at some point I just turned to the Oxford English Dictionary. And and one of the things we came across was this, you know, old definition of 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 violence that that had that contained more um, meaning than it does today, and it included, you know, acts uh, against uh, people committed by the state, harm committed by the state against the popu- against the public, and um, you know we explored that in this episode, Cherry Pie, and looking at um, the terms of Jamil Alamine's imprisonment, how he was held. Um, um, the degree that they went to um, take away aspects of his humanity um, and whether, you know, like to what extent the public is comfortable with the government committing these types of acts on our behalf, no matter what anyone has been convicted of. Do we believe that um, our um, public representatives should inflict that much harm on other people? That's what this what this episode asks, and this this episode asks, are we, um, to what degree are we allowing the government to commit this type of violence on our behalf? Mm -hmm. And to what degree does the public consider itself accountable, right, uh, in in that regard? And I believe it is during incarceration in Attica that uh, that A-Trap Brown does convert to Islam uh, and will we learn about this conversion in the course of radical and after he is, after he is gone from Attica where he relocates to Atlanta Georgia now I think uh, one one very crucial fact here is that he is a person who is speaking from firsthand experience on multiple levels about things um maybe, Kids in the West End have like no growing up, and now they're able to speak with someone who is a community leader who is saying, "Yes, this is real. Uh, these these conspiracies and problems exist. There are solutions, and I can help navigate. I can help provide those solutions." We have uh, in radical extensive interviews with members of the community during this time. Uh, and a lot of those interviews uh, or a lot of the the substance of those conversations has never made it to the air before. So I'd, I'd love to ask when you are speaking with folks who have first experience with the imam, who have, um, who have grown up in these times, was was there anything people said or any any commonality or even just any singular statement that really stood out to you and stuck with you and why? You know, I, I think it was was an was an idea of uh, 
you could call it brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever word contains contains both of those things. There were people, community, there were people who felt that they could lean on each other and that they loved each other and that they would be there for each other to kind of navigate the difficulties of the world. And they, um, and it was really kind of this, this, this nice thing where they said, okay, the world may not be organized to, to lift us up, but we're going to lift each other up. And, and people remember that time uh, quite fondly, the people who I spoke to, uh, you know, and in doing this, they were doing, they were, they had a lot of mores that were, that we could not consider normal and that I, you know, that wouldn't, that I wouldn't want to in, engage in, but they're, they were doing this voluntarily, you know, like the, the, Amanda Jamil had a lot of control over that neighborhood. Um, you know, they were essentially living under his very close leadership. It wasn't like everybody would want to live under those circumstances. So there, there, it, you did have to give up some type you had to give up a little bit of personal liberty to to be in this little utopia. Um, and so I, I, I can't say that that's for everybody. And also over the course of time, that sheen, that good feeling did start to diminish. Like, you know, things are always changing and they changed in ways that weren't necessarily for the best. And we, we explore that in the show. I'm thinking about uh, Rodney and, and as you're like driving around with Rodney and, and just exploring the neighborhood again, and he's telling you all these stories of the violence that he experienced on just a regular basis. Uh, and I'm almost imagining a perimeter around the Majid and the, the, or like the, the area, right. That was more, more or less controlled by the Imam. Um, I, I like, the, it felt like there was such violence that existed right outside the door and speaking of just I'm thinking back when you were when you attended uh, that summer camp, right? I have a very limited experience, uh, but I've been to a lot of churches, most of them suburban middle class churches. I've never been to a church that has a security detail. And it, it makes me think about, you know, what was going on there? What did you learn about like the security detail? Yeah, there's a there's a backstory to it. The West End was a pretty dangerous place. Um uh, before Imam Jamil got there, it was known as um, there were a lot of drug corners uh, where people were buying and selling and using. And those drug corners uh, were pretty lucrative. And so they were defended with violence. And so um, Jamil Alamin and the people around him come in and start to to turn that around. Um, they established this this masjid, which is actually in a house um, in the neighborhood. Um which is, you know, you know, like a, a grid of crisscrossing streets. And so people, and he establishes five prayers there. And so people are walking from their homes to this masjid or house in the neighborhood to pray. And on those walks, people wanted to feel safe. Um, some of, you know, the five prayers, the first prayer is right before sunset. The last prayer is after sunset. So some of those prayers are in the dark. Um, and uh, people wanted to feel safe. And so what they established was this security patrol that would make sure that people walking back and forth to the masjid would not be harmed. Um, the people on this team were armed, um, and there were, um, it was understood in the neighborhood that if you violated the, uh, the safety of anybody who was, who was going to pray, that there would be consequences. Um, you know, there, there emerged questions over the years about the extent of those consequences, and we explore that in the show. It's unquestionable. You can't question that some people lost their lives uh, in and around the West End who were drug dealers. Uh, you can't really quibble with a life that's lost. It's if someone's gone, they're gone. And so, you know, how those people came to lose their lives is, is something that, um, that we explore in the show as part of the legacy of, of this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And this this again uh, may feel somewhat familiar to a lot of us tuning in today who have lived in communities where uh, where someone makes this argument that says look the people who are quote unquote supposed to be providing safety are in fact not doing that therefore we will we will 
together lift ourselves up and provide that sort of safety without all the, um, you know, the due process, the red tape and so on, at least is how it's put theoretically. And for folks who have never uh, been involved in in that sort of interaction in a community, that may sound that may sound strange, right? That may sound anomalous, but I, I believe it is important for people to remember this high this situation can occur. Uh, it is not a a um, it's not a one off thing in the American discourse. Well, but I guess the question is: Was the that security force that was there that existed, it feels to me like um, a, de- a defensive posture, a means of protection, right? I wonder, did you find anything where maybe potentially that security force was used more as an offensive thing, or maybe there's a sect within it that was, was, was that saw itself as a way to crack down on, on some of the drug dealing and, and people that they viewed as undesirable. Perhaps proactively. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're getting we're getting the spoiler material here. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, here's the thing that I learned in looking at this story. If you have a particular approach, uh, let's say your approach to dealing with the trouble in the neighborhood is is to arm a bunch of guys and and uh, you know give them relatively free reign to keep things safe. That can work for a little while, or maybe for a long time, but it becomes difficult to control as people get a taste for that type of power. Um, and um, and uh, it just becomes difficult to control. And so uh, a taste for that type of power and also that type of money in some cases. Now, And I, and I say that because of this. They were protecting their community from drug dealers. And, and one of the things that, that we hear is that in the beginning, they would, they would sometimes, you know, come across these guys and they would confiscate their, their drugs or whatever, or, or maybe they would take, the, they would confiscate this money. And then at some point in, in the beginning, they were flushing the drugs down the toilet. They're getting rid of the drugs. At some point it becomes, well, this is actually money that we're flushing down the toilet. What do we do this? And then, and then the kind of slow corruption process starts of, of, of um, you know, kind of becoming something that is different than your initial ideals. And that definitely, definitely happened um, in the West End. Like, no question. But no spoilers. Do but listen no spoilers. to episodes seven and eight, though, if you're interested in this uh, line. <laughs> uh, yes, by the way, we also know that, uh, for everybody tuning in, uh, as we are recording, the final episode has yet to release so i can't speak for everybody but i am i am on the ride as well i don't i don't know how the how we conclude yet uh but but well when you hear this Mm -hmm. episode eight will Will be will be available on tenderfoot plus Early but, yeah, you'll have to wait another week until mm-hmm. it comes mm-hmm. out. Hey, and full disclosure, I I also uh, s- subscribed for early access to make sure that I could be as up to date as possible. And with that, let's take a quick break. Hear a word from the sponsor and return with Mosi Secret. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and we're back there's another turn here and this is not i would argue this is not a spoiler because this is sort of our our next act a culmination of some of these factors right of this growing stuff describing um the the idea of agency leading to mission creep the idea of um self-empowerment becoming an opportunity uh, in in some ways for other behaviors we know that during during his time in Atlanta as a community leader the imam was was in in situations with law enforcement i'm thinking of um i'm thinking of 1999 when it was pulled over in marietta georgia right uh that was a that was one of those that was one of those situations where i think he ultimately gets charged with impersonating a police officer even though he has an honorary badge and the literal mayor is like yeah i gave it to him so we see what we could argue uh, with a lot of sand is uh, a, a series of uh, persecution, right? A series of a- actions that are um, persecuting this person, the storied activist at the same time that he is building this powerful community in the West End. Could you, could you walk us through um, just in, in, in broad strokes, what the official narrative is of the March 16th, 2000 incident that ultimately led to his arrest and conviction. Yeah, I I can walk you through. Um, And we can, and we can start with this, with this arrest in in Cobb County. So as you mentioned, he was, he was pulled over and arrested um, uh, by some, by some cops up there. And, um, you know, he eventually was charged as a result of that uh, stop with, um, uh, driving a stolen car and impersonating a police officer. And the impersonating a police officer part is because when the cops stopped him, he, Ma'am Jamil showed this guy a badge and we don't really know what the conversation was, but it, it seemed it, there was some type of, 
we think that it's because he wanted to let this officer know that he was like a legit person and, and, and who didn't kind of deserve any mistreatment. But whatever, he was charged with impersonating a police officer and driving a stolen vehicle. The car was stolen. And so that initiates some, some court hearings. Uh, for various reasons, Imam Jamil did not show up for those court hearings. Um, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Um, this is months before the shooting. So there are sheriff's deputies in Fulton County who are Fulton County who are trying to serve this warrant over a period of time. They're trying to arrest him and bring him in for this charge out in the suburbs. Um, and that's what was happening the night of March 16, 2000. Two sheriff's deputies um, were going around um, the spots in the West End that Imam Jamil was known to frequent, trying to serve this bench warrant for fa- failure to appear in this court case. The cops come to the neighborhood looking for Imam Jamil. They don't find him and they leave. They're in a in, in a in a marked car, a Crown Victoria, and they're driving away. Uh, there's like a small street there that goes away from Weston Park that they're driving away. In their rearview mirror, they see uh, a car pull up in front of Imam Jamil's store. Uh, so they turn the car around, turn around their squad car to see what who was in this car that pulled up. So the squad car comes back down the street and the and the car pulled up in front of the store is parked on the street. It's a black Mercedes. So eventually the squad car and the black Mercedes are nose to nose. And there's like a, you know, you see the you see the you see a confrontation brewing here. So the cops get out of the car, um, you know, one on each side of the car and, and the man in the Mercedes gets out of the car. Uh, the cops um, notice that they cannot see the man's hands the man who's gotten out of the Mercedes, and they ask him to show his hands. The cops say that the person um, uh, says something to the effect of, of, hey, and then uh, pulls a long rifle out of um, some type of long garment and starts shooting at them. Both cops are hit. One of them runs to a field near the masjid and and, uh, waits there another one of them is killed right there in front of the car. Um, and so this is the this is the the shooting and the crime that eventually leads investigators eventually um, uh, charge a ma'am Jamil with. Um, you know, after that shooting, he did he fled. He fled to Alabama to the very location where he had been organizing um, as um, as an activist in his young life. A federal law enforcement eventually found him there and the Mercedes, which was riddled with bullet holes. And he was charged and convicted of this crime. Just knowing that the Mercedes was there at his location where he fled and it did have bullet holes in it is one of those things that you just, you hear that and you think, oh, okay, well then that's obviously what happened. But it's so much more complicated than that right i mean and especially as you continue exploring the story you continue you know you kind of look you take a really hard look at the witness statements from the surviving deputy um there's some really there's a really interesting piece in here uh about the man's eyes i can't remember which episode that is but just specifically this officer who was shot who says i looked directly into this man's eyes who shot me and like gets if it is all means eyes the eye color's wrong so you're he like said huh? gray eyes yeah but, I mean, there, there's so many inconsistencies like that that make you again as a listener as you're as you're going through this make you question things was there any point where you began to really question the story and feel like you didn't have a grasp on what occurred especially when you encounter somebody like Otis Jackson, who has a completely different version of the story. I mean, there were many points where I thought I didn't have a grasp of the story. We're, we're dealing with events that happened um, 20 plus years ago. In addition to dealing with a lot of secrets, you know, both FBI secrets and secrets from the Muslims in the West end. And so these types of things, you kind of wonder in the beginning if you're going to even get to the to the bottom of them, and and uh, there were many moments when I thought that I that I that I could never really figure out what happened. Like you just kind of come to a point where, you know, someone says one thing, someone else says another thing, and you you don't really have the means at your disposal to figure out which is which. But 
we do draw a conclusion in the show. Um, and, uh, you know, to my surprise, actually, and to my satisfaction, I think I know what happened. But I don't know if that's going to be to everyone else's satisfaction. We'll have to see. But, um, yeah, eventually things kind of came into focus in a way that that made sense for me. Hmm. Well, and just to be clear, uh, this person that we're speaking of, Otis Jackson, had a whole other story where he was, in fact, the one who, you know, uh, shot those sheriff's deputies on that night in 2000. And um, you can. I Yeah. I, it's okay, just really yeah, so Otis. Yeah, you asked me about Otis. So, yeah. so Otis is someone who confessed to this crime pretty soon after it happened. Uh, he was known. He was a known person around the time of the trial in 2002, uh, prosecution and defense, and who over the years has maintained that he's the one who did it. And so, you hear something like that, and uh, and you. He was not co- coerced into, or at least it doesn't appear coerced into making this confession. And so you have to take it seriously. And uh, and we did. And and we talked to him. Johnny talked to him. Uh, my producer talked to him. And you get into these things and you realize that even something like a confession that was not coerced can be actually quite complicated. Um, and that's what we find, you know, in conversation with Otis. And it, and it does what we thought was kind of be a clear kind of direction toward the truth actually was a misdirection. And it it was definitely one of those moments where, where I thought I I didn't know which way I didn't know which way was right. You know, like in, in the, in my early days of reporting on the story, remember the first time I read some of the stuff from Otis, I was like, Whoa, this guy definitely did it. And then other points I was like, Whoa, this guy is lying. So, um, and it, and it, and it, uh, yeah, we go, you have to see which way we landed on that, on that one. Um, but it, it was complicated. Mm -hmm. And, and I do want to, I do want to point out too, one thing that, uh, I find quite impressive is that in this investigation, there is, um, there's this beautiful, like, Jedi-like objectivity to uh, to asking the people with the conflicting narratives. You know, let's let's talk to prosecutors involved in this. Let's talk to you know. Let's talk to Otis Jackson. Let's learn all sides of this story. And I just want to say I immensely appreciate that point of sort of way leading on to way. You know, because we want to build our we want to build our bricks of logic, right? Our if thens need to be solid. And it seems like several times um, we, as the audience listening to this, are experiencing the same thing. We're like, well, this is definitely. Oh, but wait. Oh, wait, but then what does that also mean? Um, which I find compelling. And I find also it is, it brings us to, it brings us to the fact that this is not an historical uh, case, an historical footnote by any means. We know uh, the imam is, I believe, uh, the imam is currently incarcerated uh, and has, I, I think, gosh, just a few years ago, had an appeal that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Is that correct? I don't think that they got certification on the case. Um, oh, okay. But they 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 uh, went, the Supreme Court did decline it? Is that I'm pretty correct? sure the Supreme Court declined it, yeah. Okay. Well, how, for people listening now, um, in the case of, in in the case of this uh, current incarceration, could you tell us a little bit about how the Westin's community is thinking through this? How they are experiencing, uh, how they are experiencing the case, and is there any active movement to perhaps uh, have him released from incarceration? So the the, the folks in the West End, there are people who are still organizing, you know, who are still making a campaign to have him released. They are, at this point, all of the, almost all of the legal options for Imam Jamil um, have been exhausted. Um, All the appeals have been exhausted. All the habeas petitions have been exhausted. His last remaining hope is um, a division of 
um, the Fulton County DA's office called the Conviction Integrity Unit, which reviews possible instances of wrongful conviction. And so the people in the community are essentially uh, mounting a public campaign um, to get certain evidence considered by, by this unit of the DA's office. And so there are people there who are still very much behind Imam Jamil. Um, but, you know, in this podcast, we don't explore their feelings that much because they didn't want to talk. Imam Jamil and his one of his sons still have a pretty strong degree of control about control over how this community behaves. And um, we, you know, we, we weren't allowed to talk to them on the record. So the stuff that I know about, um, you know, how things are playing in the community, that that's kind of like secondhand and scuttlebutt, you know, so we, we weren't able to get anything from them directly. We do have a guy in the show. Um, his name is Bilal Sunni Ali. He is, um, he is a Mam Jamil's, um, I forgot the exact term that he used, but he is essentially the person who was leading up um, uh, on the non-legal side, who's not a lawyer, the person who's leading up the campaign uh, for Imam Jamil's freedom. And he did talk to us, but kind of like beyond him, we don't really have a, that much of a sense of how things are playing other than, you know, like things that are posted on social media. It, it makes me think about the influence and maybe loyalty, uh, the influence that, Alamin had had and has within the community the perhaps a loyalty to him that, that uh, some people feel. Uh, and it again takes me it's weird, man. I keep going back to that security detail. I think it's because I'm fresh off listening to episode seven. But it's I want to talk about this person, Shahid, but I, I don't want to give too many spoilers. There's there's an individual that you find, I think, via. Uh, I don't. I don't know exactly how you come across him, but there's a, another document at play here called the Synopsis of West End Homicides that just looks at specific individuals who were killed in the West End neighborhood over a, per- a certain period of time there, and in a lot of those individual murders, there are people who are suspected to maybe have played a part, but often it's like there's no evidence linked to this individual murder case. So there's homicide, right? And just, I, I, I don't want to say the police are not investigating each one of those individual cases, you know, with full veracity, because I'm sure they are. It's just, it does seem like not a lot of attention gets paid to the drug dealers that got shot on the corner versus the deputies, uh, that were shot right, uh, by their car. I, and I just, I just wonder if, it makes you wonder about the big picture of this show. And like, if, if are there, have you found any big picture answers in your exploration to something like uh, a, a big question? Like how do I, as an individual or a leader enact change within an oppressive system that views me as an enemy? Like, do you think there's any, at least partial answers to that question that you found? Or what can people take from the show? Yeah. You know, I found those answers for myself and I give those answers for myself in the show, but I hesitate to tell other people what the answer should be for them. And that's how I frame it. One of the themes in the show is kind of this, um, a ma'am Jamil was this person who was very hard to define because he meant different things to different people. Um, he, to federal law enforcement, he was this villain who they pursued, but a lot of the things that they based this assessment on, of him on were either imagined or not necessarily true or someone was spinning them or like various types of things. Other people gave him this kind of like heroic sheen, but when you kind of break that down, he was doing stuff in the community that is questionable and he was leading them in ways that were questionable. And but the story that was around him still has this um, he's still held up in this way that is impactful in people's lives. And, um, you know, what we were dealing with, essentially, we determined 
were stories and the power of stories on both sides. Um, and the power of stories for people who are uh, trying to shift narratives about their communities and shift narratives about um, what their governments and their leaders are capable of. And as a storyteller and, and, and working with this kind of like shifty material, that's kind of what I decided to play with in the end. And, and that's what that's what the what we do in episode eight. Mm -hmm. And as as we noted, uh, as you are hearing this today, folks, the uh, almost the entirety of Radical is out now. Uh, do check it out, please. Uh, as as we said, uh, we have immense appreciation, not just as uh, not just as residents of Atlanta, but as um, as fans of investigative journalism uh we have immense appreciation for your work here and one one of the big questions that I, I never want us to miss when we talk with journalists of your caliber is where people can find more of your work uh not just related to radical uh but your your work with propublica and etc and so on uh, the times the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, also, I've got to. We've got to give the flowers here. Uh, I I didn't mention it at the beginning, but everyone, uh, Mosi is an award winning journalist. Mm -hmm. By the way, didn't want to embarrass you on that one. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay, um, I will take this opportunity to say that I was working with a great journalist on this, Johnny Kaufman, who I always want to, um, you know, highlight because this was as much Johnny as it was me. As you guys know, we have a producer, you know how these things work. Like we were doing this thing as a team. Um, and my work um, is on my website, mosisecret.com, which I um, need to update and refresh. If you have a website, you know how that goes, but a lot <laughs> of the stuff is still there. So um, that's a good place. And uh, yeah, you know, my name's kind of weird. So if you Google my name, a lot of stuff will come up too. Again, we cannot thank you enough uh, for your time here today. Thank you. Uh, it's, as for our fellow conspiracy realists, uh, please do tune in the show. Available today wherever you find your favorite podcast. What a fantastic show. You know, Matt, we were so lucky to have Mosi on uh, for this conversation. I've got to say, I'm sure you felt the same way. As longtime residents of Atlanta, a lot of this was uh, was quite familiar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very familiar. Uh, one of the most interesting things you can listen to is a bonus episode where Mosi and Johnny Kaufman, the two producers and writers of the show, get together and just talk about finding documents, you know, doing those freedom of information requests and just sifting through the stuff. Just so many things because you're talking about a person, H. Rap Brown, that goes back to the 1960s, right? Mm -hmm. Where there are real FBI files. We're not joking about these FBI files. So many on this individual. And just holding that in your mind and applying that person, that the, or the, the way that government sees that person, applying it to this person who's now an imam in Atlanta, and like how does that influence everything that's getting thrown at him? Um, we, yeah, we didn't get to the Cambridge riots. We didn't. Mm -mm. There's so much stuff we didn't get to. Uh, but Musi and his team get to a lot of it. If you'd like to learn more about COINTELPRO, please check out our earlier existing episodes on proven conspiracies on the dude, part of the alphabet, dude. And I'm I'm not kidding. Go back and listen to the MLK tapes show as well, because there's some weird parallels there with the same individuals at, in charge, like in the FBI and uh, just in the mechanisms that are applied to both of these stories. Really fascinating stuff. And thank you, as always, for tuning in, fellow conspiracy realists. We would love to hear your take on this exploration. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on other cases that may have have uh, triggered some similarities for you when you hear this. Because uh, as I had mentioned earlier, the thing that might escape a lot of people 
is that these are not necessarily one-offs. These are not necessarily things that exist in a vacuum. So let us know, please get thee to uh, thy favorite method of communication, whether that's Instagram, YouTube, or uh, Twitter, FK, or X, FK, Twitter. We're all over all of those. Uh, or you can give us a phone call directly. Yes, our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. It's a voicemail system. When you call in, you've got three minutes. Give yourself a cool nickname and let us know if we can use your message on the air. It's that simple. If you want to send us links or attachments or a longer story, why not instead shoot us an email? We are. The folks who read every single email we get. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.